0: This
1: this, this show is brought to you by Safety FM. Hi listeners, this is Brent Sutton. Welcome to the 81st episode of the Practice of Learning Teams podcast show. On today's podcast, I talk with Stephen Scott about his journey with Hop during his career, what he is doing in his retirement, and his passion to grow the community of Hop and Learning Teams with his monthly Hop Happy Hour get-together, which can be found on LinkedIn. I found Stephen to be one of those unique people whose passion and desire to create change remain strong. His words of wisdom and his own experience of our hop has developed is inspiring for all of us as we continue on our own journey. Please sit back and enjoy this episode of The Pod with Stephen Scott. Well, Steve, welcome to the show. It's great to have you on. And uh, I've been watching you on, on LinkedIn and you're, and you're very active. And uh, yeah. you're one of the very few people that actually has on your LinkedIn page A recommendation from Todd himself. (laughs) Yeah, well, thanks for having me. I I really
0: appreciate you inviting me to be on your podcast.
1: No, that's great. And um, love the work that you're doing and and love the work you're trying to build um, uh, the community. So look, for our audiences, let's have a little brief history about Steve.
0: Yeah, so let's see. Um, 1989, I started working in an aluminum smelter. Um, started as an hourly operator, um, did, that, did that for about 10 years. Um, during that time, right at the end of that 10-year period, I guess, that smelter got bought by Alcoa, and so I ended up being part of Alcoa. And about that time, I took a job as a first-line supervisor, and then ultimately I ended up as a department superintendent in that smelter. And then uh, a couple years later, that smelter was curtailed, I did some continuous improvement work for the business for Alcoa. And then I, in 2008, I took a role as a continuous improvement manager for a business unit, the North American primary product. So I was working with eight smelters and an alumina refinery doing continuous improvement work. And, um, about 2009, somewhere in that time frame, I heard about this thing that in Alcoa we called human performance improvement. And, um, we had brought Rob Fisher in to, you know, work with us on that. And it sounded interesting. So I, I went to the training and it, um, it just really resonated with me. Um, so I started spending more and more time in that field. And, um, uh, eventually I, I tell people, I kind of got dragged kicking and screaming into the safety organization and, um, spent the rest of my career there. So I spent about the last nine or 10 years of my career, um, working almost exclusively with human and organizational performance, and finished out my career the last four years there as the director of human performance for Alcoa Corp. So I got to, um, you know, traveled all the Alcoa sites globally and helped drive this journey, drive forward this journey we called human and organizational performance. And um, I retired in 2019. Now I'm doing it as an independent consultant.
1: Right. yeah I, I always like the word retirement <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> that really means um, I now have the choice of what I like to do yeah,
0: yeah yeah I don't have people telling me where to go and when to go I have I have the option to say no <laughs> yeah exactly exactly
1: <laughs> and it looks it's, it's always interesting about people's sort of individual hop journeys because it, it's fair to say that that you you've seen hop evolve over that time.
0: Yeah. And, um, it's, it's interesting when we first started in with hop at Alcoa, it was heavily focused on preventing errors, right. And identifying error likely situations using hop tools to prevent errors from occurring. And, um, Alcoa at that time was still very, very much under the influence of a guy named Paul O'Neill. Um, Paul O'Neill had been CEO of Alcoa in the late eighties, early nineties, and, um, was a safety fanatic and really, really drove the idea that we should be a zero harm workplace. Zero is possible. Every accident's preventable. The only acceptable outcome is zero. And that was very much the mentality in Alcoa. And so, everything we did almost everything we did in the safety arena was focused on preventing incidents from occurring. So when we embraced hop, it was about identifying error likely situations so that we can prevent events from occurring. Right. Um, and we were probably about seven or eight years into that journey when Alcoa had a string of really, really bad events. Um, And we, we kind of realized that when, when something like that happens, you've kind of got a choice. You can keep doing the same stuff harder, or you can do something different. And, um, we made the decision that, um, you know, this, this philosophy we've had about preventing bad things from occurring has only gotten us so far. And we, kind of embrace this process of critical control management or critical risk management, which is basically, um, let's think about where failures are going to occur and how do we protect the worker when it does, which was a huge shift in the mindset at Alcoa. Um, but it was, uh, it was very much seen as a, a much more practical, realistic strategy for preventing serious injuries and fatalities than just planning for zero hoping nothing happens right so i think the evolution that i went through was um i still think there's some value in identifying error likely situations and doing what we can to prevent errors from occurring but let's just accept that as humans we're fallible errors normal we're never going to eliminate it therefore we need to be prepared for failures And, Uh, you know, as, as Todd says, let's, let's identify as safety is the presence of capacity so that when failures occur, there's enough slack in the system that they don't result in really tragic outcomes. And that's kind of the, the evolution that I've seen. Um, I think the other thing that's evolved with, with me personally is we spent a lot of time and energy initially when I was with Alcoa and training workers, right? Um, Every worker got like eight hours of HOP training. And then we trained a bunch of workers as advocates and super advocates. And I am much more focused on working with leaders. I think it's, it's much more impactful to the organization. If you get operational leaders to understand what HOP is, really embrace it, understand what their role is in a hop organization and be willing to drive that and sponsor it. And um, so I think it's much more leader centric the way I, I look at hop today than it probably was back
1: in the early days when I was with Alcoa. Right. Cause, cause obviously it's sort of, you know, the organization saying it's a worker problem. Let's go out and fix the yeah. worker. Yeah. Which is rather ironic, isn't it? Yeah yeah <laughs> and it's it's kind
0: of it's kind of interesting to me um because i i my background let me see a big organization like Alcoa literally from every level from the from the shop floor level to the executive level and um you know I think that's really helpful to me in what I do now in that it's it's I probably have a better opportunity than most mm-hmm. in putting myself in the workers' shoes. Um, and thinking about things from the worker's perspective. And even when I'm talking to leaders, I very frequently talk about it from the worker's perspective. You know, <laughs> think about what you're doing from the from the other side, from the worker's view. And um, I think that's really helpful sometimes to be able to put people in that position to, to think about it that way.
1: And it's very powerful if leaders can actually look at it through a different lens as well because there are are many lenses. But just touching on that concept about the error thing, I mean, I don't have a problem with understanding error because I think there's an opportunity in understanding error because that opportunity is actually about quality. And I think that opportunity is also around operational excellence. Yeah. Rather than purely safety. Right.
0: I I tell people all the time the... The last job I had when I worked in a smelter was I was superintendent of, of a department we called the cast house, which was kind of the end of the process in a smelter. We took molten aluminum, turned it into finished ingots that we cut and packaged and sold to customers. So I dealt with a lot of quality issues in that role. And the first time I sat through uh, Rob's training, what's going through my mind is, man if we could reduce the number of errors we make that cause us to produce defective products and then send them to customers is that worth a ton of time and money and energy and frustration and and aggravation to the to the company and to me personally and so when I yeah when I talk to people about hop today I I tend to talk about it not as a safety initiative but as an operating philosophy and safety is usually the the first place we practice it right but I I I haven't seen anyone yet who practices hop well in safety, and doesn't do it in other areas of the business, like operational excellence and quality and reliability and efficient uh, efficiency and effectiveness. Right? It just if you think that way around safety, you're going to think that way around those other areas of the business.
1: Yeah, but I think the difference there is um, in safety, we see the error potential as a threat. But when I think about operational excellence and I think about quality, we see error as the opportunity. Yeah, that's a good way to look at it. You know, it's a, I love that saying: fear the green, embrace the red. <laughs> we, you know, yeah, the we opportunity. <laughs> yeah, the opportunity is on the red. If that makes sense. Yeah. 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 So when someone's telling you something's not right, that's the opportunity to learn. That's the opportunity to to basically do that. And and, and look, I'm and I'm seeing that more and more um with with the work, particularly around the work we're doing with the four D's, the dumb, different, difficult, dangerous type um thinking frame for workers, is that a lot of what workers are actually identifying are actually improvement processes. So simply by identifying, for instance, that we've got these forklifts going through these areas on a frequent basis, but if we moved the product from the area to another area, we could reduce those movements. A, you've got a reduction in exposure between mobile plant and people. B, you've got a reduction in in carbon emissions. C, you've got a reduction in the amount of time and effort for turnaround. Yeah. All those things, they all go hand in hand.
0: And I think the most powerful part of that, you know, the way you describe it is um let the workers figure out how to do it. What uh, they said, know, well, let, they said let, it was
1: dumb. What, yeah. what? What why why do we put a product that is continuously <laughs> being accessed the furthest away from where it needs to be?
0: Yeah. I I think that's one of the things that I realized when um when I was an hourly worker and then when I went into supervision that um the workers are generally the first people to see the symptom of a problem, right? Absolutely. They're the first Absolutely. ones to see it. Um, and either usually either one of two things happens. Usually either they believe they're they they do not have a voice to bring mm-hmm. it up, or they tell you loud and clear about it, right? And yeah. so as a as a leader, I think the challenge is to, you know to, to tap into those people that believe they don't have a voice and, you know, give them every opportunity, actively seek out, um, you know, opportunities for them to tell you where their where there's pain points are, where their frustration is. And then to, you know, to listen to the ones that are, uh, that are really loud about, um, where they're, that are happy to express their displeasure. Right. Absolutely. Um, we can't treat, treat, can't treat them as whiners. They would, they're, they're people that have something that, that, you know, they, they see as a problem.
1: Oh, yeah. And, and, you know, the organization said, Oh, you know, w- we were shocked to learn that it had been, been done that way for the last 10 years. Yeah. Well, the, there's a reason why it had been done that way for 10 years because no one was listening. I had,
0: uh, I can't tell you how many times I've, I've, you know, been talking to someone after some type of incident, uh, quality incident, yeah. uh, reliability incident, safety incident. And, um, you hear that. Well, that's been happening forever. And how come you didn't say anything about it? Well, because the one time I did, nobody listened. Or Absolutely. I thought no one was going to listen. Or, or we've been complaining um, about that forever. And we just got tired of complaining about it,
1: right? That's right. Or not not involved in the solution or not involved yeah. in the feedback. All those, all those things. Share with us about the hop happy hour. That looks that looks great. And I and I'm going to be connecting in and, and I've actually made a commitment to uh, stay for the audience that we're, we're going to be giving away a book on that as well. So, yeah. Uh, yeah.
0: So um,
1: I, I have to admit, this is
0: not an idea that's original to me. So I remember somebody told me a while back that there used to be a group. I don't I don't think it's still active, but there used to be a group on the West coast of the U S that had something similar. And I thought, especially um I probably should have done it about three years ago when COVID started, but Mm -hmm. even, you know, as, as things are loosening up around COVID, I still don't get enough opportunities to connect with other people that are in the hop business that are in the hop community or that are, that are just curious about hop or that are, you know, wondering, wanting to learn more about it. And, um, if I'm in that position and I'm, I'm retired and I have plenty of time if I want to travel and stuff, then, then people that have, you know, busy jobs and busy lives are probably experiencing that even more than I am. So I I thought that it would be cool just to have a, uh, a get together on Zoom once a month for anybody that has um, any background um, that wants to talk about Hop. And so we started it up in I'm trying to think August was the first mm-hmm. one and i think in august we had um we probably had 20 some people come on probably about i don't know 12 or 14 of them actually were involved in the you know chatting and had their cameras on and stuff and september only had a handful of us on we're gonna do it again in october and um you know as long as there's people that are interested we'll keep doing it i um I've gotten something out of it every time we've done it and I think that some of the other people that have been on it have gotten something out of it and I just think it's a it's a great opportunity for us to be able to network put faces to the names, um, you know get to talk to people and it uh, doesn't cost me an airplane ticket or anything it's just uh you know sit down in my basement and turn on the computer and uh, maybe
1: drink a beer while I'm doing it. Absolutely. So I think so far there's about 87 people have said they're attending. So there's a
0: bunch of, yeah, there's a bunch of people that have accepted this time. So I've got, yeah.
1: uh, got i got high hopes this will be a good one. Yeah. Well, well, we'll keep pushing it out for you as well because I, there's definitely, there is, there is huge value in building community. Yeah. Because we're, we're, we're all in this together. Um, And, and at the end of the day, you know, I, I just keep telling people there's no, there's no one right way of doing this stuff. Now, and just as just as change happens in small increments, that we see as a big increment when an event happens, we can also affect change in small increments as well. Yeah. So you know the thing the thing I love about Hop is that opportunity to micro experiment. Yeah. With people because it can't be any worse than it is now. I mean, I say I say to people because there's always this fear that if we try something, oh, we going to make the place less safe? It is what it is now. Like I, I hear all the time, um, what if we what if we learn stuff we you know we we don't want to know about? I said, well, it's happening already.
0: But the fact that you prove something you don't want to know about means you learn something, right? <laughs> you well, may have well, learned what I don't want to do in the future, but we have learned something,
1: right? Yeah, uh, and, and I think I don't know how you feel, but but. What I'm seeing is that there is this perception amongst leaders that if they know, they have to act. That there's a connection between knowing and then acting on it, like fixing. They believe that there's a connection between knowing and fixing. Yeah. And and I try and say to them, look, there's actually something in between called better understanding. So yeah. if, if you if you if you find out about something. Be curious to better understand. That better understanding process, it could lead to a self improvement, right? It doesn't actually need to lead to a to to a to a fix as such. And and I, and I think we've got this mentality, um, and you know down this end of the world, um, and in many other Commonwealth countries, when when we look at about our laws around safety, particularly around safety governance. The offending, the criminal offending at an at a what's called a border and officer level, is actually about failing to know, not failing to act. Mm. And well, we're uh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, it's, it, and it surprises people because they they always thought, you know, our risk is if we don't do anything about it. Yeah, we're saying none no, of the risk is actually not not knowing about it. One i and I think you're
0: right. I think we we' here in the u s we tend to be a very litigious society, so i I don't know if it's exactly the same, but um one thing I do know is that or that I have observed in a lot of places is that when we when we find a problem, very often we don't want to do anything until we found what we believe to be the perfect solution. mm mm-hmm. Mhm. It's that analysis paralysis, right? We keep looking at it and thinking about it and talking about it. And, and well, this will solve 50% of the problem, but what about the other 50%? And I think the one thing we encourage people to do in hop is any incremental improvement is a step in the right direction, right? Don't, don't look for the home run, look for, you know, get a base hit, move, just, just keep moving forward in the right direction. And, one of the things I think that does for us is usually those incremental improvements aren't multi-million-dollar capital projects. Usually, they're things that are quick and easy to implement, and um, that means we're we can do them fast. You know, we can yeah. do those micro experiments, prove it out, make the change, and um, and and keep moving incrementally forward without waiting for that uh, multi-million-dollar project that's
1: going to be you know the the uh, the cure for everything. Absolutely, And we have the saying when we um, do learning teams, we call it improve or remove. So if you, if you affect change, has that change become embedded? Is that change sustainable? And if it's not either improve it. So it becomes that or remove it. Yeah. Because don't let waste build up in the system. Right. Well, I think it's- waste is your biggest enemy yeah it's 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 funny you
0: said that i i was i was just dealing with a a client very recently that has a um a very rigorous continuous improvement project that is driven by a team of engineers right. and what I heard you. from what I heard from the workers over and over again is when they show up to do a continuous improvement activity they already have their mind made up what the solution mm-hmm. is they implement that solution regardless of what we say. And as soon as they leave, we go back to doing it the way we always did it. That's, that's everything you don't want to do from a, you know, from an improvement perspective. Um, And I think the, the, the absolute worst part of that is the message it gives to the workers that um, you don't know what you're doing. I know, I know what you're doing better than you do, which is, which is just a terrible Terrible thing to tell the people who do the job every day.
1: Look at look us, and and uh, sadly, I've seen the same thing, Steve, countless times. And I um, do quite a bit of work uh, on the other part of my business is is around dealing with fatal events from a legal perspective. And uh, you know, machinery still makes up a huge amount of these types of events going wrong, and. I just keep seeing the same things happen continuously. And and it all comes down workers being able to access, you know, these danger zones around machinery. Engineers have a view <laughs> that it's the fault of the person wanting to do that, not the fault yeah. of the, not the fault of the machine. Because the machine is just releasing energy. The machine's doing what it's designed to do, yep. which is release energy. And the biggest thing that I've talked to to them about is this concept um, uh, called uh, reasonable foreseeable misuse. Hmm. So that is, if we haven't designed the risk out at the beginning, then we're always going to be facing an uphill battle because our best opportunity to manage risk is at the design phase. So whatever we missed out at the very beginning... We now have to deal with its potential consequence. Yeah, and when we put in these other mitigations or defences or controls, we have to understand how the worker sees that through the different eyes of how they perform their their normal work. Yeah, so whether it's for you know setting up the machine, calibration, um, operation, cleaning, you know clearing jams, all those things, all those things happen and surprisingly that risk profile dramatically changes across those different modes but no one asks the question what does normal work look like for them yeah it's yeah. it's funny i i can remember uh,
0: this is years before i heard of of hop i can remember um we were installing a very, a big automated, complicated piece of equipment in the department where I worked at a plant. And it was very, very evident to us that there was an unguarded machine. And when we commented about that to the, to the manufacturer's reps that were there guarding it, um, we, we, we actually said, you know, OSHA is going to require that we have a guard here. And he looked at us like we were stupid, and we said, "What? You you don't require that?" And he said, "We're not dumb enough to stick our hand in there." And and when I heard that story, when I heard that story, the the thing that's going through my mind is that's because you're an engineer, not an operator. You're not the one out here running that machine. You're the guy sitting in front of a computer designing it, right?
1: Yeah, they, Um, they they think that a worker, they think a worker would have to be stupid to knowingly put their hand in, and. And when we started looking at how many different times a
0: day that the worker had to get in that area just to do the normal work that we pay them to do, um, it was just mind-boggling that we, you know, we actually bought this machine that uh, that had this much exposure to it.
1: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Steve, it's been great catching up with you today. I look forward to connecting into the uh, the hop happy hour as well. Yeah, I look forward um, to having you. Love to get you back on the podcast as well, and we can we can t- uh, talk about some uh, many subjects. So so brilliant. Look, thank you for your time today, and thanks um, for having me. I, I know the audience is going to love um, the stories that you shared with us, and we'll talk again soon. Thank you, listeners, for being part of this podcast. We'd love to hear your learnings from today or other topics you would like us to support you on. Go to www.podcastlearnings.com and be part of the community of practice of learning teams at www.learningteamscommunity.com.
0: Welcome to Safety Differently Merchandise, the premium sponsor for the Practice of Learning Teams podcast show. Our curated lines of inspirational clothing, headwear, cups, stationery, and more at Safety Differently Merchandise is befitting of your Safety Differently journey. I am Arthur Taylor, Chief Designer. I have spent decades on Savile Row and honored to bring my talents for all fine purveyors and devotees of HOP. Learning Teams, Safety Differently, Safety 2, and
1: the New View please visit the store, and purchase our fine goods at safetydifferentlymerch.com. And now, back to the show.